This is Customer Obsessed, the show that dives into the nitty-gritty challenges of entrepreneurship and genuine customer connection. In this episode, we're talking to Corinne Sklar, a brilliant creative mind in the world of business and marketing, who is the Chief Marketing Officer for IBM IX. During our interview, Corinne shares how her background in art has influenced her approach to innovation and collaboration, especially when it comes to feedback. Join us and learn how to push beyond what seems possible and create processes and team dynamics that support people, both employees and customers, first. Ready to get customer obsessed? Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Customer Obsessed. Eric, how's it going? I'm good. How are you today, Erin? I am good. It has been a little while, so I am definitely excited to be back with this episode and our guest, Corinne Sklar, who is the Chief Marketing Officer for IBM IX. And Eric, out of the two of us, you've known Corinne the longest, so why don't you introduce her and tell everybody who she is? So Corinne Sklar, for those of you who don't know Corinne, and many of you probably do, to many she needs no introduction, she was our CMO at Blue Wolf for a long period of time. And we hired her very early in her career. We were still kind of getting our feet wet with what marketing was all about. And as a professional services firm, you know, sometimes marketing or a lot of times marketing takes a back seat and it's really a an organization that's led by consultants. And when we brought Corinne in, we kind of shifted our approach and we wanted to be more like a product company. We wanted to market like a product company. And we believed that, and this was really before the whole onslaught of digital. It was definitely before social media had really kicked in as a, as a channel. And we kind of saw the future as one where we needed to establish a brand in the marketplace and we wanted to engage with our customers on all different levels, whether they were buying from us or whether they were just interested in what we had to say. We really wanted to create this knowledge brand in the Salesforce ecosystem. And Corinne kind of came in and did that. And she was a phenomenal hire and someone that I started out as being a mentor to. And by the end, I think she was a mentor to me and still is to this day. So, you know, with a lot of bravado too. Corinne doesn't hold back. She doesn't mince her words. She's incredibly creative and a wonderful human being, but I'm excited that she agreed to come on the podcast. And I couldn't think of a better way or a better moment to bring her on. So let's go. Corinne Sklar, welcome to Customer Obsessed. So excited to be here, Eric. So Corinne, let's dive right in. Where did you come from? We'll start there. Oh man, this is a personal story now. Where did I come from? Well, I came from the town of San Diego. I uh, grew up in Southern California. Um, where did I come from? My dad's an immigrant from Cuba. Mom was an artist out of the East Coast. They had some kids. My dad was in tech. He was an engineer. He was a scientist. Really gave me the love for technology. I didn't realize it. I hated him for it when I was growing up. He made me do math quizzes and 
God, I, I hated it. But my mom was an artist and I gravitated towards that. And somewhere down the line, I found the mixture of both. I had an opportunity to go to an amazing college called Mills College in Oakland, California, which is known for really avant-garde, creative, experimental art. And I would say that was probably the biggest catalyst for me in really actualizing who I was and really understanding the power of the creative process. And then was in Silicon Valley, wasn't here in the San Francisco Bay Area and had the opportunity to meet Mr. Eric Barrage. And uh, I would say the rest is kind of history. That's my story. You actually made a decision as a young student to transfer to Mills, if I'm not mistaken. Weren't you originally at UCLA? Yes, yes. Realized that was a substandard, subpar school. It's basically a junior I'm just kidding. I love UCLA. Sure, sure. I'm going to tell Melissa on you, all right? I know. But but seriously, so you spent a year at UCLA? Yes. What made you decide to go in a completely different direction and go to an art school? Many reasons. Um, Let's see, I'll I'll give you the two biggest ones. Uh, Number one, I was at a time in my life where I was basically putting myself through college. So you went from a public university to a private university? I know, it sounds kind of crazy, but I had a mentor And I wasn't really enjoying my experience uh, where I was. And I asked her where she went to school and her face literally lit up. It was like, let me tell you about this place that I went. And, you know, she told me about it. And it just so happens, you know, I was, I had a music background, crazy background story. And I had this book a long time ago, and all the credits in this book were actually Mills College. I'd turn Hmm. the page and I'd be like, God, this I've heard about this place and I got to go and check it out. So I actually went to Oakland on a trip uh, with a friend and, and snuck on campus and went into their music department. And it was instant. The minute I got on campus, I was like, this is where I belong. That was probably the real catalyst of it all. Once I got on campus and I saw the experience of what a women's college was like and the focus around the individual, it was pretty clear that that was the path that I wanted to take for myself. And that was a decision that I made independently from what my family wanted me to do. Wow, that's powerful. So is it based on individuals, based on your ability to express yourself freely? Right. Yes. And you ended up majoring in art. Is that right? Yes. Art and journalism. Um, you told me a story once that I want our audience to hear, which has stuck with me for a long time. And it has stuck with me because, you know, as we talk about customer experience and as we talk about customer being customer obsessed, you know, it all gets back into like what's happening inside of a company and how information and people and culture deals with that customer experience and, and, and does its best to innovate customer experiences. And you told me a story about how the most terrifying thing you can do is be an artist and put your art up for critique. And that stuck with me because I think we don't do a great job of critiquing inside of companies. We're scared to, we've got boundaries that we don't want to cross. We're very respective of how people feel about things. 
We have major HR departments in this day and age that are yes. putting up guardrails. And for all the right reasons, I'm not being critical of that, but I think about when you told me that story, because I feel like we need to critique ourselves better inside of companies. And I think if we have a better way to critique ourselves and give each other feedback, that ultimately is going to create better customer experiences. Yeah, let's talk about that. I think there's, there's a lot there. So, you know, I went to art school and it taught me a few very important lessons. Number one, and they're actually related, Eric, is about collaboration. The type of art that I did was all about collaboration. I would work with different departments, different artists, musicians, scientists, dancers, and we would have to learn how to collaborate and produce something. And that is really the creative process. And then the second part is critique. And, you know, critique is really about how to take feedback, even if it hurts your ego. And I think to your point around business, we both know this very, very deeply that the work that we've done around digital transformation, especially the last 20 years, is less about the technology than it is about the human interests and dealing with the human element. And the human element is about alignment, ego, fear, security, ownership, identity, right? It's much easier for us people to focus on the ones and zeros than the underlying emotions and assumptions that drives our human decision-making and, and really inertia in business. I would agree with that. I mean, especially as a writer myself, learning how to divorce my ego from creative feedback. It's that separation of self, right? Because that when you create something, it feels like a part of you. It's part of your identity. It reflects your beliefs, your values. So when somebody critiques you, it's very, very difficult to separate yourself from the fact that they just want to help you make something better. And I think that's the thing with critique is critique the concept of that creative process. And I will say, you know, the design community goes through this pretty heavily. So it's not just in the pure art world, but designers, if they've got good art directors and creative directors, they're used to this process. You know, they put work up and it really is the process of everybody really tearing it apart in a good way. And after doing that over and over and over again, it's not that you lose your ego because you never do. It's that you learn that there's a, you're learning through that process and you begin to let it go. And I think that's what drives the next level of quality work that drives a better outcome for everyone and really enforces collaboration. It allows people to put aside that ego and really work to, on something together. I think that's at the heart of collaboration. What's the state of collaboration inside of big companies that are not design agencies? Yeah, I mean, I think you deal with the same things over and over again in large companies is, is the silos, is you're dealing with the human element. You know, you're dealing with people's focus around ownership, what they own their own assumptions that they bring into the business. Um, I think that, you know, large companies still struggle with, you know, obviously the biggest one is alignment and all those things are underlying human emotions and areas that I don't think companies feel comfortable really attacking. And it really needs strong leadership at the top to be able to make those changes. 
One thing I will say, if anybody is even in a smaller group setting is looking for a way to kind of break down those barriers and that resistance to critique, sometimes I find it helpful if you ask people what they're looking for, like what they specifically want to improve, because there's nothing worse than giving somebody something where you're looking for one level of feedback and they take the dreaded red pen to absolutely everything in a way that you're not expecting. Um, so that's just one thing I want to put out there is just setting expectations with the team too can be a really great way to build trust because giving feedback and receiving feedback is an exercise in, in trust and openness too. Yes, very much. And I think in some cases, just because somebody has feedback or critique doesn't mean you have to take it, right? Mm -hmm. But what you don't want to do is stop that process. Sometimes it takes a while. I was given some feedback on a call today and my visceral immediate reaction was, well, he's wrong, right? And I started formulating my argument against his feedback. Like I found myself doing that. And by the way, I still think he's wrong, but that's a different story. But like literally like two hours later, as I think about that conversation right now, as we're speaking, I'm like, okay, first of all, number one, this is an opportunity for me to build a stronger relationship with this individual. Mm. They've just gone out on a limb, mm -hmm. right? I haven't even seen you to this person. They just got out on a limb and giving me feedback. Mm -hmm. Like how hard was that? Like that's not easy. That takes guts, right? So I need to embrace the fact that I'm being given feedback. And then I think you need a period of time to really weigh it too. Now you probably didn't have that luxury when you put up a piece of art at your school and you got ripped apart. Like you got to get fast at it too, right? You got to build that muscle. Practice makes more perfect, right? I also believe that collaboration as it stands today, it's really weird. I think we've taken a big leap forward by being able to use digital tools like Zoom and Mural and Miro and all these other things. I think we've stayed, taken a huge leap backwards in that there's not a better environment to collaborate in and co-collaborate in than if you're together and you're at a whiteboard or you're outside in nature or like get your emotions moving because you can't come up with the next great idea logically. Yes. You actually come up with the next great idea illogically. Mm-hmm. And emotion feeds that spreadsheets do not feed that. Yes. And, you know, people always ask me like, well, why do you call your podcast customer obsessed? Because all you ever talk about is culture. And it's what drives customer success. It's what drives customer obsession. It's what drives great customer experiences. It's people that have come up with the greatest ideas to drive customer experience. You know, there wasn't a cookbook for it. Right. They came up with it out of thin air. It was emotion that fed it. That's a great point. And I would say... You know, obviously in, in the work in my field in marketing, which obviously has a very direct role to customer experience, I would say that is absolutely the same type of anthem or vision that needs to be reflected in marketing because, you know, so much of marketing in, in the world that I live in, which is B2B marketing, is you know, a term we've always used, Eric, was this concept of me too. But the reality is, if you want stuff to stand out, you want to connect to customers in new ways, there is so much noise. It's gotten, and I was saying that, you know, 10, 15 years ago, it's even more noise now. And so you actually have to do things against the grain. You've got to be finding things that are actually really new, which is always hard. 
to stand out and to resonate in this space. And actually you need to have a avant-garde. You have to have a bit of fear in the programs and the, the ideas that you're thinking about, because otherwise you're just adding to the noise. What do you mean by you have to have a, a, a bit of fear in your programs? Like, what are you marketing? Scary people or like ugly people? Like, how, what are you marketing? Great <laughs> fear. I'm talking about individual fear, not external fear. I just feel as if so many people will look to their competitors and what are they doing and what's the best practice. And yes, there is space for that. I'm not saying that, but. I actually really hate sometimes looking at my competitors because then, or my, my teams, because then they start thinking, well, I got to do what they're doing. Terrible. And, and instead it's like, throw it all out. We need to be doing things that are completely standing out and really engaging and not looking like them. And so sometimes I think it hurts people, especially marketers when they look at their competitors, because then all of a sudden you start seeing that work coming into what you're doing and that's just adding to noise and it's not differentiating. No, it's a purple cow. Yeah, it's a purple cow. Right? Oh, Seth Godin. So, who wrote that? Seth Godin. So I'm reminded of um, a kind of sports analogy here, which is unusual for me, but um, I'm going to go with it. <laughs> um, <laughs> so uh, I remember seeing this article that was talking about basketball strategy. And it, it was a data map of games over the years in the past, like 20 years, about player position on the court and how a couple teams hit on, one or two teams hit on this like winning strategy of how to position their players to score the most points possible. And how, you know, after that was discovered over the course of the next five years, all of the diversity in terms of position practically disappeared. And mm -hmm. now all of the teams play essentially the same way in the same positions on the court because they're all looking at each other rather than within their own teams necessarily finding out what works best for them. Huh. And they're yeah. all following the same model, which right. I think is really fascinating. Well, I don't know if I've ever brought this up on this podcast, but we always just talk about David and Goliath, which was a book that mm – -hmm. um, What's the guy's name that wrote that? He wrote Tipping Point. Maxwell. Uh, Mal Malcolm Gladwell. Malcolm Gladwell. Sorry. <laughs> Malcolm Gladwell wrote, uh, he wrote David and Goliath. And one of the, th and I used to talk about this in front of the company all the time. Like, first of all, you're trying to deliver experiences to customers. The reason you're doing it is because as a brand, you're trying to win, right? Like there are very few industries in this world that are not hyper competitive. Mm -hmm. So why do you deliver great customer experiences? Well, you want customers for life and you're competing against all the other inferior brands around you to mm -hmm. get that. And to your point, Corinne, that causes noise. So if you look at customer experience as actually a battle, like we are fighting for customers. Yes. And when we get them, we have spent a lot of time and energy figuring out how to get them. We better keep them. You keep them through experience as well, right? You acquire yes. customers through experience. You keep them through experience, right? I'm a big Tesla fan. I've talked about this on the on the podcast. I'm having an issue with my Tesla right now. My brand loyalty is declining. They'll probably save me. It's a heck of a brand. But my point is you keep them through experiences as well. So it's a constant battle. And to your point, Aaron, in this book that Gladwell wrote, he did an analysis of 200 wars fought over the period of like 500 years. And he figured out that 75% of the time, the nation that had the most people and the biggest army won the war. 
75% of the time makes sense, right? You have the biggest basketball team, the fastest basketball team, they're going to win 75% of the time. However, he then analyzed the 25% that won against the big countries, and he figured out that every single one of those used an unconventional method. Right. Mm -hmm. And he actually determined that if you fought a battle over this 500-year period of time with an unconventional method, which is the history behind David and Goliath, you won 80% of the time. So yes, in modern marketing, you are trying to come up with a different, more appealing way that is going to stand out. And in selling and in serving customers, you always have to be trying to bring a blank sheet of paper to the table where you can innovate. Unless your brand is to be me too, copycat, low price, race to the bottom. And there are great brands out there that can do that, mm-hmm. that are multi-billion dollar companies. Mm-hmm. But if you are trying to be a premium brand and if you're trying to differentiate yourself based on your value as a premium brand your only choice is to try to be different totally and that's it's hard for conservative companies it's hard for uh you know the the last thing you know companies want to do is shake the boat and you know anytime you bring that level of insecurity in the type of work you're doing it's hard. It's hard to push that stuff through. And and I think that's important. You need fearless leaders to be able to do that. 100% agree. One of the things you taught me, Corinne, about modern marketing, and we're fortunate enough now to have technology that can enable this, is once your brand is defined or established, everything is a campaign. Almost everything you do is a campaign. And some campaigns work famously, some fall flat. A lot of them fall flat. Probably the majority of them fall flat. But everything is structured around a campaign where you can attempt to try to measure ROI. And you're not trying to measure ROI just to justify your existence as a marketer. That ROI is telling you, are your customers embracing it? Right? But that was like a lesson you taught me. And and to me, it got to the point where if it's not a campaign, it doesn't exist. Yeah, I mean, I and I think it's these are some of the biggest myths in marketing just around, you know, one of the biggest myths that I think out there is that B2B marketing does not need to invest in brand building. Over the long term to drive those out-of-market buyers, you have to invest for the long term. You've got to look at how brand is really infused in everything that you do. And it's not just about getting those customers in, you know, within that, that are in market buying or service or product at that moment. But really it's about future customers and, and building that for the long term. And so I think that's one area that we worked a lot on. And I do think that is something that is still, I still see struggling and in, in the ecosystem of marketing that I'm in. I also think there's another area that is a big challenge for B2B marketers that it's marketing is not just only about generating leads. Yeah, marketing is a function across the entire buying cycle now that needs to function with scale. Marketing is taking on way more challenges outside of just, you know, what you think is your full funnel, but looking at how marketers are taking a bigger step in customer experience. In your role now, Eric, how often do you see a CMO now in conversations around broader customer experience initiatives? Do you see it enough or is it, do you see it growing or is it still in your world not coming up as much? 
it's hit and miss. You know, we've got a large auto manufacturer in the U.S. that we're in deep conversations with. The CMO is very involved and almost driving the initiative around the whole concept of having a customer 360 and why that delivers great customer experiences. I'm working with a big insurance company right now where the CMO is almost non-existent. Right. But it's one of the first conversations I will have with an executive team is you got to pull marketing. Yeah, that's great. I'm a big believer that organizations that are marketing led and marketing driven tend to produce the biggest returns. I think that's a really great point because you know a lot of marketing, even though we've had a bad rap for many years of being arts and crafts and you know the the art of marketing, you know obviously the sciences is also you know been for the last twenty years. I don't even think most people understand the the amount of technical knowledge you need to have as a marketer these days. It's it's amazing, right? right? But the reason why I think marketers are so good in that CX role around company transformation is a lot of what marketers have spent their lives focused on is the human element, looking at how we appeal to emotional, you know, how do people feel and think about the brand? And if you look at a lot of these digital transformation projects, you know, that you and I've been involved in over the last 20 years, it rarely is about a technology issue if those projects fail. It is most often more nuanced. It's about yeah. these things we talked about earlier, alignment, ego, fear, security, you know, so. Prioritization, just prioritizing. Prioritization. Finding a low hanging fruit, finding high value, low cost. But I would even say prioritization has to do underlining with that individual's underlying areas of their assumptions, their own insecurity sometimes, and their ability to not collaborate. If you were to offer some advice for businesses that just don't have a handle on that type of brand building that they need to do and that human element, how do businesses and, and marketers in particular go about humanizing their brand and, and how do they do that authentically? Because I think that's what a lot of businesses do struggle with. Yeah, I mean, from a pure brand conversation, you know, I got to give it to a friend of mine, Erica, a woman you know, her name is Nancy Kramer. You know, she's talked a lot about this concept of belonging. And I've really embraced this idea that, you know, especially during COVID, and we could have a whole long conversation of what I think this has done to, to businesses. But, you know, I think all people are looking to belong, to feel connected, accepted, to have more purpose, to be heard. And, you know, I think that is the depths of what the brand work needs to be, you need to be looking at within in the work that you're doing around your brand. Obviously, it needs to be customer first, you know, and for IT leaders, it's also, you know, your employees. I really do believe right now, you know, outside of brand, but, you know, just what does it mean to humanize that brand to make it come to life? I think we got to get serious about rethinking workflows, how work gets done. I think this will become the biggest differentiator. I think we've been putting technology on top of it and just saying, here's a new tool, but we're actually not really being customer obsessed, looking at how work gets done from the employee's perspective, looking deeper. We've spent a lot of time to look at how the customers might be doing it, but we need to take a more serious look at how work gets done. And we need to be looking at automation thoughtfully 
to make it priority to drive productivity for end users. I think employees are still bogged down with things that are not allowing them to add value and get closer to the customer. Um, I think we've been saying this for years upon years, Eric, but when the rubber hits the road on some of these projects, what are the first parts of the project that get cut? It's the human element. It's the change management. It's about the people. Those, that's it, the first things that get cut. And, you know, I think, you know, how do we humanize the brand and how do we, you know, drive these big initiatives forward? Well, I think we've really got to take serious the hard work, which is rethinking our assumptions and rethinking how work gets done and then looking at how technology fits into that, but looking at it more from a human element. Interesting. Is that Nancy's uh, talk track right now? Somewhat? No, I just, you know, a few years ago, she launched something around brand belonging and just look at what's going on with COVID now. It's caused most people to reflect on their purpose. You know, in, in my business, many people stepped off the hamster wheel, were forced off of airplanes and into their homes with their families or alone like never before. I mean, Eric, you probably spent more time with your family than you ever have. Me too. <laughs> and I had a baby yeah. through the pandemic. Yeah. You know, you were forced to be with yourself like never before. And I would say that everyone right now has their own version of transformation over the last years. And COVID has been a catastrophe, but the word catastrophe is actually more positive than ne negative. It actually means to turn. And I believe that right now is a, a massive human transformation that's taking place and businesses should take advantage of that, focus on their people, not just the technology and use this as, a, as an opportunity to turn their businesses. I love that. To turn. To turn. Yeah. So we can't turn around. We got to turn. It's just to shift. Catastrophe has happened you could say in the world right now with COVID, but this is the opportunity for us to shift. And I think we should all take advantage of that individually and as businesses to focus on this human element, which is really what we're talking about when we talk about transformation and digital transformation. We're talking about people transforming <laughs> with technology. And I think it's just, trust is just an absolute imperative in every business and you have to trust your people oh my gosh yes and you have to trust your people's abilities to to manage their work and to and to show up and be present at the times when they need to show up and be present right and i think some of us in the tech world take that for granted because we've been doing it for longer for a variety of reasons i think naturally probably 10 years ago we all started to figure out as tech companies that you just can't hire people locally into your office so we started hiring people remotely and then the onus was on us to make sure we were bringing them together on a regular basis because this human connectivity is really really important but there's still some industries that think we're going back there are still leaders that are like actually making public statements about reducing compensation if people don't come back to the office. And while that might be a reality at some level in a business, why would you ever make that public statement? Oh my God. I mean, why would we use this opportunity to give the employees what they actually want, which is connection with other employees. So just because people are working remotely, look at what we did, Eric, with Blue Wolf. We brought people together. That was 
the most valuable thing that people would say to us around our experiences that, you know, oh, I finally got to meet you. And it wasn't about just the work. It was about building connection because when the rubber hits the road and a project goes south, you need those people to be connected. And so here we are. Okay, everybody might be remote, but why aren't we spending maybe the money that we're, we're not having and offices or all the travel in bringing people together more in these smaller functional areas to just come together. This shouldn't be a money, just a money saving exercise, right? This should be, how do we then build deeper connection with employees in ways that's meaningful for them? Yeah. People want to be together. I mean, I'm actually broadcasting this today from the Salesforce tower in New York. No one has to be here. It's packed. But people want to be around people. Yeah. And I think the newer work models that are coming out of the pandemic are going to be really beneficial. And I think it benefits customers. Like at the end of the day, we have always said engaged employees create engaged customers. Engaged customers buy. They buy more frequently. They buy higher margin products. They stay with you forever. And it always starts with the employee engagement calculation, which I think we're learning a lot of lessons coming out of the, the pandemic or hopefully coming out of the pandemic. Right. And I think too, it's about being intentional with it, right? And giving employees a a reason and a a purpose to come together that it's not just this expectation, right? And listening to employees about what they want and need, like you said, Corinne, and understanding that you don't always have to be together, always is not the answer, but you definitely do need that element of connection. And when that does happen, you're right, sparks fly and it is, incredible the energy that comes from that i mean i experienced that myself because i was one of the lone marketers out in new york every time i came to san francisco to be with all of you it was absolutely incredible the amount of ideas that were generated and the bonds that were forming it was always so so meaningful to me to have those experiences with all of you in the office because it wasn't something that happened every day. It was, and it was always around these moments where it was this intense, creative, dynamic process, right? There was always that driving it. And that was really, really powerful. Yes. You you talk about marketers taking risk and being different. Tell me the story about the Trapeze Act in San Francisco at Dreamforce in like 2008. I don't know if that's going to come off very positive in this uh, podcast, but I'll tell you the story. Um, you know, so we, of course, you have your your ancillary experiences across, you know, the intensive Dreamforce um, event that happens every year, you know, every year. And um, we ended up uh, renting out this really amazing um, place, I forget, it was like 2008, it was, it was around the financial crash. And um, we rented out, um, I forget the full name of it, but it was a supper club. It's like a club I think it was restaurant. called the supper club. Yeah, the supper club. And, um, you know, it was a very unique venue. You know, I was looking for something that wasn't so corporate, right? You know, I was looking for something that's going to cause people to shift and be in a unique environment. And everybody loved it. We did a whole kind of postering thing in there and we had a big reveal we had everybody in the bar and then we opened up the doors and we went in and there was beds that you would actually sit on and you know we had a few customers I remember we had uh, the New York Times there and you know they were like oh this is so exciting and they had their whole team all bundled up in one area 
Um, and then we had one client um, who came a little later and we didn't actually have any rooms for at, on the on the bed area. So we put a table kind of in the middle of the the space. Like it was like everything was it was like a stage, let's imagine, right? Like in the middle. And um, you know, a financial services client, I think they were so, like from the North Carolina. No, it, was or something. Called, it was a company called Unisource. Big oh, was it? Yeah, big distribution company out of the Southeast, headquartered in Atlanta. Got it. It was Unisource. Yeah, okay. I remember the, the COO's name. I don't remember his last name. He was a great guy. His name was Craig. Okay. And they were actually, at the time, probably the biggest deal we were chasing in our pipeline. Not yet a customer. Prospect. Prospect, right? In our funnel, like yeah, and we, yeah. we somehow got him to come, you know, of course, to this unique experience, and um, so he sits people down. People were literally lying on beds. Yeah, I mean, I'll just call it out. There were people lying, laying. Keep me honest here, Aaron, English major. Um, uh, yeah, laying on beds, lying on beds, no, lying, lying. They were lying on lying. beds. Literally, people were lying on beds in this venue at a corporate event. Right? It was kind of cool. So keep going. So and you'd have to put in context, it was in like a huge warehouse looking thing. So it was, you know, two layer, two floors. Okay. So there's beds on one floor, two floors. So anyway, so uh, he comes in, we give him this table right there. And, um, you know, I remember at one point they told me when we were choosing the venue that there would be an act. And I was like, yeah, that's fine. You know, you know, didn't didn't I should have thought more about what it was. Um, anyway, the act begins and the music goes on and the lights go off. I'm like, whoa, what's going on? Well, and- even before that happened, okay. we were all kind of attuned to Craig. He was sitting at this table in the another- center in the center with like a colleague of his and you know we're in this place people are laying in beds we weren't serving like steak and potatoes either it was like the tapas tapas and i almost remember i have an image of him actually picking up a piece of food and like looking at it and almost smelling it before he put it in his mouth like where the heck am i and by the way the other thing you didn't say is the entire place was white like everything was white yes with the right. blue lights. With the blue lights. So keep going. So, yes, it was a very unique environment, not like you've probably experienced before. So anyway, the lights go down and the act starts. And all I can say is the first thing that I notice is a young man on a trapeze in, I would a say, short, a loincloth, loin maybe. Loincloth, yeah, um, that's it completely, um, you know, on a trapeze and basically doing an in-air dance right above Craig's head. Sweet. (laughs) No, true story. Very well endowed, like beautiful man, gorgeous man. I literally at that moment, Aaron, I'll never forget. I looked, I ran out of the room. I found, I was like, where's the manager? Where's the manager? And I was like, we got to get this off. We got to stop the music. He's like, we can't do it. He's in the middle of the act. I'm like, oh my God, I would not walk back into the room. I was like, when is it over? Yeah. The act finished. This guy, Craig, literally got up and left. Gone. Out. Finished. I remember, 
I, Mark Loveless was our sales rep. Mark's a great guy. Hopefully Mark's listening. And Mark literally, I think he came up to me and said, we're not going to win this deal. This, this deal. <laughs> no. We had a many other people clap for this, for the artist. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I mean, it was a pretty wide clap, but Craig, no. Craig, Craig from Unisaur, several weeks later, signed a multi-million dollar deal with us, and they were a client of Blue Wolf's until I left IBM in 2016. So, And did Craig really actually enjoy we chuckled. We chuckled about it um, a few years later, but we didn't talk about it at all. Like, it never came <laughs> up. Uh, until, you know what? It cost him to shift, and it was different. It probably stuck in his mind. I got to go with these Blue Wolf guys. He knew who we were. You know, he was like, I'll never forget that night. So there you go. Trapeze Act. That's going to be the name of this, um, uh, this podcast. <laughs> oh, my. That's that Grace story. I had never I had never heard that before, Eric. You and that story. laughing out loud. It was hysterical. I, and I didn't know what to expect either. The way that you both prefaced the story and I had I had no idea what was about to be revealed. And boy, did that deliver. I swear to God. <laughs> I mean, to talk about again, being someone who is fearless and is just going to own it and yeah. run with it. And, and there you go. That's a perfect, perfect example. Uh, so... For everyone who who got a chance to to listen in with us and and also hear that story for the first time, we definitely have more to come from Corinne uh, in our our part two. We actually had to split it up into two interviews because we've got uh, we had a lot a lot to say and a lot to cover. So, but uh, Eric, can I uh, can I tell you the worst moment I've had as a boss? So, what was the worst moment you've had with a boss or as a boss? No, yeah. So I, I'm going to tell you the worst moment that I've had as a boss, and it involves feedback, and I did not do it well. Like, it was a really, really bad moment for both me and my employee. So, and it has to do with Skywatcher. So we had hired our first Sky Guide. Her name is, or was Lillian. She's no longer with the company. And again, I think that has more to do with me than with her. And the training to be a sky guide is pretty intense. You have to sure. learn a ton of information. You have to be willing to memorize essentially a two-hour tour experience that changes based on the season. So you're really constantly studying and updating and all this stuff. And again, one of our first outside hires. And so I'd never done it before and was kind of learning on the fly too. And it got to the point where she was ready to give a faux tour to me just for feedback and general critique. And she starts the tour and it's just the two of us out there in Joshua Tree, uh, full setup because we were doing a full run through so she could practice. And instead of letting her give the tour as though I were a guest end to end full two hours, I, within the first five minutes, had interrupted her to give her feedback in the moment, interrupted the flow, and for the next two hours, proceeded to do that to her throughout the tour. And at the end, we talked about things, and 
at one point, just because our expectations about how this was going to go and everything were just so misaligned that I caused a bit of frustrated tears from her at the end of this as we're trying to talk through. And it it was so, so awful. And really what I should have done again is just let her go from end to end, you know, taken some time to consider the full performance and had a separate feedback session with her after all of this. But bar none, the, the worst way I could have gone about it and talk about me just basically I demoralized her in this moment where she was so excited to show me everything that she had worked on. And it was, I obviously I learned a lot from that experience. So for anyone else, I hope that you can learn from my mistake. (laughs) Yeah. It's, it's, it's the feedback thing. It's, I think it's something we struggle with inside of companies more than we realize. And, uh, I think you're probably better off where you are right now, Aaron, quite honestly, I wouldn't like, lose sleep over it but you know you can't peanut butter it like you, you think at the end of the day when you're giving feedback to someone particularly if they're a subordinate you just have to force yourself into their shoes and you are responsible for their psychology you really are and that's the burden of giving feedback it's easier not to give it it's easier just to say you know what fuck it this situation will deal with itself and I don't want to be responsible for any negative impact or feelings or maybe I'm wrong with this feedback. It takes a lot of confidence to give feedback. 95% of the stuff we deal with is subjective. You're like, are you right or wrong in your assessment of someone's performance? You could be wildly wrong. People react differently to different things, right? So I don't know. It's a topic for maybe another day, but I'm really glad that we touched upon it in this podcast because it feeds the improvement of experiences inside of a company and it feeds the improvement of customer experiences. Right. Because I think all the points that have been raised, right, can easily be extended to the world of our customers and, and customer relationships, right? Are like, are you listening to the feedback that they're giving you? And then are you willing to adapt and change when they tell you something's wrong, something could be improved? So I think that the culture of feedback within your own company, right, internally with your employees also determines the feedback culture and relationship culture that you have with your customers too. Yep, 100%. And I think when you give that feedback, you're always trying to give it in a way where there's a way out and there's a way up and it's positive and this is how we're going to improve together. Anyhow, it's, it's a long drawn out topic. And by the way, like the trapeze was fucking amazing. Let's just leave it at that. Yeah. We'll end on the high note and yes, a great trapeze artist, the highlights. <laughs> that is Corinne Sklar episode one. We are going to come back to you with an episode two on an entirely different topic. And I'll hold out the suspense. We're going to keep it a secret, but this is also one that you are definitely not going to want to miss. So we will catch you next time. Thanks for listening to our interview with Corinne Sklar. We'll share the resources and books we mentioned in the show notes at customerobsessed.net. And don't forget to sign up for the Customer Obsessed newsletter to stay up to date and get bonus clips and exclusive content. If you're a fan of the show, please leave us a review and subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts so you never miss a customer-obsessed moment.